0: Well, since the advent of the internet, there's been a number of new vocabulary words that have popped up and made their way into uh, Webster's Dictionary. Uh, Do you remember when a troll used to just be like a little guy that used to live under a bridge? Uh, Now, you know, trolls are people who cause problems on the internet, in chat rooms and such. And uh, connected to that, there is a term that I just discovered yesterday. Uh, the term is called sea-lioning. Um, so, what's sea-lioning? It's an, it's an online trolling tactic. It's basically death by a thousand irrelevant questions. And so, when someone is trying to explain something, The opponent will just ask never-ending series of questions from what appears to be from a very polite motivation, um, sincerely, but they're all irrelevant questions, unrelated questions, questions that bog the person down. All the while, though, while they're asking these questions, they're coming across like, I'm very committed to a very reasonable debate, but their intent is to wear the opponent down, to frustrate them, to exhaust them, and finally to provoke them to some kind of irate, angry response, at which point they can go point to them and say, you see, this person is no good. They're malicious and they're unreasonable. So if you didn't know about sea lioning, now you know. Watch out for it and uh, stay away from those chat rooms anyway. Um, But this morning, there, we we might see a little bit of sea lining going on in the passage we're looking at. We're going to watch Jesus give some straight answers to some very crooked questions. We've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Um, we are all the way up this morning to chapter twelve, and I got to say I've been very very intentional in planning this whole series out to to make a point to finish on Easter morning with the resurrection. It has not been easy to outline the series that way. Um, I can't wait, I I hope you're able to be there. And uh, in order to make that happen though, uh, we are gonna get as far as we can through chapter 12 today. Uh, This week on Thursday, we are going to go through chapter 13 um, in one of the classrooms here and a seminar format, it's called Ask Anything. So if you want to know about Mark chapter 13, if you have any questions throughout the course of this, uh, come to that. You're welcome to it. And then uh, next Sunday, we're going to skip over that and go right to um, chapter, uh, chapter 14. Um, but, uh, but we're looking at these straight answers um, to very crooked questions. And before we get to those questions themselves... The first thing we see as we open up the Bible into this passage is we we get a story first. Jesus shares the very pointed parable that really sets the stage for how things are going to unfold in the days ahead. And so this story that we're going to look at is more of a direct allegory than probably any other of the parables that Jesus told. So by allegory, what that means is that the characters in the story are directly referring to particular actual people, as opposed to most parables that are just telling general truths. And so we're going to look at who is playing what part in this script that is being written. But before we do that, let's just read through the script and unpack what the story is all about. So in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says this, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them the fruit of the vineyard. And, then, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. All right, so this story is about... A lot of different things. So we're going to look at three things. The first is that this is a story about God's outrageous patience, the outrageous patience of God. The first character we meet in the story is is the owner. Uh, This owner has done all the hard work. He set up this beautiful, fully functioning vineyard operation. Now the part of that owner gets played by the Lord. Right, He is the one who established the vineyard. And that's a reference to God's chosen people, Israel. He created them out of nothing. He freed them out of slavery. He set them up in their own land to be a holy people dedicated to his redeeming purposes. And after he finished, he he, he, he leases the vineyard out to his tenants. God, God entrusted the care of his chosen people to spiritual leaders who who show this shocking disregard for what's been entrusted to them, right? The, the owner sends out a servant to collect on the rent, and verse 3 tells us that instead of giving the owner what's due him, the tenant sees this servant, they beat him up, and then they send him away empty-handed, All right, so that's in verse three. And if we fast forward to the end of the story, skip to verse nine, what we see is Jesus is going to ask this question, and then he answers the question himself What will the owner of the vineyard do? Now, the answer is pretty obvious heads are going to roll, the owner is going to take decisive action. When he comes and destroys the tenants, is what it says, and and gives the vineyard to others. But the thing is this, it it takes a while to get there. The distance between verse 3 and verse 9 is pretty large. And the question is really this, why would the owner, why would he wait six verses before he gets to the point where he's had enough? Why wouldn't he just deal with these tenants after this very first episode? After the servant comes back black and blue and empty-handed. I I think that would be enough if it were me, right? But instead, he, he sends out a second service. That one, the tenants treat shamefully. He comes back with a concussion. And even after that, the owner is still holding back. He sends out servant number three. Now, now, the servants in this story, they're referring to, to the Old Testament prophets that the Lord sent to Israel. And, and servant number three in this story, he never even makes it back. The tenants killed him. All right, now that has got to be enough, right? That has to be the final straw, right? Wrong. Not yet. At the end of verse five, we read this sentence, which is shocking to me. It says, And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. I don't know about you, but to me, that seems borderline insane to wait and hold back that long. The tenants at this point have yet to exhaust the owner's patience. And if we're honest, holding back for that long seems ridiculous. It seems absurd. And you see, that's the point. By human standards, the patience, the forbearance, the long suffering of the Lord is ridiculous. But that, my friends, is is very good news for us this morning. Because here's the deal. The way he was with them is the way he is with you. And with me, aren't you glad? The Lord's patience is absolutely astonishing, right? Our God is not a short-fused God. He's not easily triggered. He's not watching from the sky, waiting for that moment when you mess up so he can strike you down with a lightning bolt. If if that is the mental image that you are carrying around of your heavenly father, it's Time for a system update. Run that system update. Our God is a God who relents. He holds out hope so much longer than what makes any kind of sense to us. His patience keeps going long after ours has run out. And that means no matter what situation you're in this morning, he is still holding out hope to you even in those times when no one else is, after everyone else has given up, you, after you are sure that you've passed that point of no return. This is a story of outrageous patience. But on the flip side, this is also highlighting the reality of reckoning. It takes a very long time to get to verse nine, but eventually we do arrive at that destination. God's patience is amazing, but it's not everlasting. His fuse is long, but there is an end to it. The time will finally come when his patience runs out and and he takes decisive action. So the point is, don't presume on the patience of God. Don't mistake or confuse patience for passivity, right? He relents so far beyond what any of us deserve. It makes me think of 2 Peter 3, 9, where it says the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards us. The reason is he doesn't want anyone to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the heart of God. But at a certain point, time runs out, and that day of reckoning will finally arrive. The tenants in this story, they resented this reality that they were tenants and not owners. Every time a servant showed up, that was a reminder that they were subject to the owner. They weren't sovereigns, they were stewards. And they didn't like that, so they killed him. They, they, they sent him away. But, but none of that resistance, none of that resentment, it didn't change the reality that this day of reckoning was going to come. Now, in our day and age, we use the word autonomy, right? It sounds a lot better than rebellion, but it really, it's the same old lie. It's a lie that tells us that it's all about me. I'm in charge. I am the master of my own destiny. No one is going to tell me what I can and cannot do. I am not going to answer to anyone. Please don't buy that lie. Creation is accountable to its creator, and there are no exceptions. The God who created you, the same one who gave his all for you, who laid down his life and hung on a cross and died for you, he is that same one who we will stand before and answer to. Let's not mistake patience for passivity. And finally, this story is a story of, of sovereignty, of God's sovereignty. Because in the story, the author is actually writing himself into the script, right? Despite everything that's gone up, on the, up, up to this point, the owner decides, I'm going to send my beloved son into that vineyard. The hope is that the tenants are going to see that it's my son. They're going to respond favorably and treat him with respect, That's the hope, but that's not what happens. They murder him. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to figure out that the part of the son is being played by Jesus. He is the exclusive beloved son of God. And once again, this story is making it crystal clear as we've seen many times throughout this gospel that every aspect of what's about to go down is proceeding according to plan, according to God's plan and no one else's. And nothing about what is going to happen is taking Jesus by surprise. And so here's here's that question that Jesus asks at the end of the story. What will the owner do to these tenants who murdered his son? How is the Lord going to respond to them? And the answer Jesus gives is he's going to destroy them. See, that's the very thing that these religious leaders have been plotting to do against Jesus. And what he's saying, it's going to happen to them. So a couple of weeks ago, when we looked at that episode of Jesus flipping over the tables in the temple, um, at the end of that, it said that the religious leaders were seeking a way to destroy him. So even while they're set on his destruction, Jesus explains that it's their demise that's looming. And what had been entrusted to them, the care of the flock, would be handed over to someone else. So the point of this story is to understand that ultimately, there is no getting rid of Jesus. Plain and simple. It has been tried many times, and it has never succeeded, and it never will succeed. Remember the Christmas story? The story about baby Jesus in a manger? Do you remember that? We don't really tell it too often, but that was when Jesus' first attempt on his life happened. King Herod tried to take him out. He failed. And these religious leaders, they're scheming here to do the same thing. And they're going to fail as well. They actually got as far as nailing him to a cross, taking his life, burying him in a grave. That ought to have been enough to get the job done, but it wasn't. Instead, It marked the end of them, not the end of him. And the only thing that they accomplished was was to fulfill the prophecies, the ancient prophecies, and confirming that this Jesus is, in fact, the true Messiah. He is God's chosen one. You see, here's the thing. Opposing Jesus ultimately only serves to accomplish his purposes. That must be the most frustrating thing for the enemies of the Lord. To understand this. When they nailed him to that cross, he won our salvation. When he died, he died as that perfect sacrifice that paid the full price for our forgiveness. So we wouldn't have to ourselves, so we can stand received and accepted before God, not because of us and how good we are, but because of him and everything that he's done. That's how this works. Those who plot his destruction are ultimately only plotting their own. And they're all in the dustbins of history, right? Jesus, on the other hand, is he's alive. He's victorious. He's reigning from heaven. He's returning as Lord, and he stands today and forever as the most influential human being to ever walk the planet Earth. Or as he says here, he's the cornerstone, and there's just no getting rid of him. So this is the script This is the story, the cast has been set, the characters are in place, and the show is set to start. Now, the religious leaders, the establishment, they hear this story and they're up in arms about it. Because Jesus cast them as the tenants. Not too subtly either. And and it hit just a little too close to home to them and, and it exposed them. And now it says they're looking for a reason, an excuse to take him out, to arrest him. And and that's what actually sets this whole story into motion. So as we continue reading, what follows are a few highlight reels, uh, some case studies of the tenants' act antics. The details may be different, but uh, but these are snapshots of the kinds of schemes that a heart bent against Jesus does. So these are these are crooked questions that uh, that Jesus is going to give some straight answers to, and we'll keep reading. bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. The Pharisees are trying to trip Jesus up over the issue of of paying taxes. That that was a hot topic uh, back in their day. And you know, come to think of it, it's, it still is, right? It's always a hot topic, a controversial issue. And, and so if you are, heard this and you're hoping, this is it, is Jesus going to get me off the hook? Sorry to disappoint you. April 18th is less than a month away and uh, get on it. File those taxes. This still applies to you. But Jesus answers and tells them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. It's a brilliant answer. It leaves the Pharisees marveling, speechless, because they were certain they had come up with the absolute perfect question. This was a question that either way Jesus answered it, they were sure this was going to get him in trouble. Either as a zealot, they would be accused of being a zealot with the Roman government, or as a traitor with the Jewish loyalists. But either way, they were sure Jesus was going to lose when he answered this question. And that was their whole intent, that was their goal. And so what it is, it's their blatant hypocrisy that takes center stage in this episode. The Greek word for hypocrite is the same word as a stage actor. A hypocrite is someone who puts on a show. And so in this case, they hid their evil intentions underneath a religious mask. They try to butter Jesus up with their pretense, with their platitudes, with flattery. Teacher, we know that you're true. We know that you don't care about people's opinions. We know you're not swayed by things like that. You teach God's ways. It all sounds like they're friends, but underneath that mask, they're foes. And their act, it it bombs, right? Jesus sees right through it. And it's worth noting hypocrisy is different than falling short of the ideals that we aspire to, right? This is something that really is worth clarifying. All of us fall short. Every one of us in this room are works in progress. In all of our lives, there is a gap between who we are today and who we know we ought to be, who we're becoming, who we're in process of. And and that's the whole reason for spiritual growth, Right? We we pursue that. We're we're honest about that gap. We work to close that gap. That's different than hypocrisy. Hypocrisy hides the gap. Hypocrisy projects something different than what's really there. And hypocrisy has no intention of closing that gap or or changing at all. There's a big difference. So the lesson learned in this episode is keep the masks off. Opt for authenticity instead of duplicity and hypocrisy. Refuse to project that image, to manage perceptions. We don't need to be perfect. Let's just shoot for being honest, right? Uh, Scene number two is about to come. Um, the Sadducees are, are going to step up and take a shot at Jesus. And, and just to give you a little bit of a primer, their sect was founded on a false teaching. They, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And, and their view was basically that when someone dies, that's it. Story over, the end. And so they come to Jesus, and they are trying to convince Jesus that that perception that their desire, that false teaching, what's wrong is actually right. So let's see what Jesus does and how that conversation goes. It says this, the Sadducees came to him who say there's no resurrection. They asked him the question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So there were seven brothers, the first took a wife And when he died, left no offspring. The second took her and he died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So Jesus, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is not the reason you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God came to him and spoke and said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. All right, so here in this episode, what we find out is, number one, that truth matters. Truth matters, right? Jesus does not cater to false teaching. He corrects it. And at the heart level, this is sort of that same attitude that puts self in the center. We're we're told that what, what I think is what matters most. This is my point of view, or as we hear today on a regular basis, this is my truth, which is a contradiction in terms. There is no my truth, there is the truth, and there is your opinion, but those are not the same. And so sometimes it starts out with a rebuke, with hearing Jesus tell us the same thing that he told them, you are quite wrong. Do you have room in your view of Jesus for him to say that to you? That's the first question, right? Because this still applies in the day and age that we live in. In this day and age where it's all about perspectives that tell us everyone's point is valid, everyone just needs to be affirmed, Jesus is still saying that when it's not right, it's wrong. And the reason they're wrong, he says, is because they don't know the scriptures. That's the sad reality because that's where the truth is found. That's the authority that he pointed them to and it's the authority that he points us to as well. And so what I would urge you to do is to keep this book open. Live your lives within the boundary lines of scripture. A closed Bible will lead to an open heart, a heart that's open to lies and the life that is bent on challenging the boundary lines in Scripture, ultimately, that's not a threat to God. It's a threat to you. Choosing to cross that boundary is choosing to step off a cliff and in so doing, plotting your own self-destruction. He also tells them this, that they're wrong not because they all just, only because they don't know the Scriptures, but they also, he says, they don't know the power of God. Their assumption Their belief, their view is that death is more powerful than God, right? To to them, faith would have been nothing more than a coping mechanism, something that can help you through life from the cradle to the grave. And that's it. See, that's an emasculated faith. That cuts the super out of supernatural and leaves you with nothing. Nothing more than just positive thinking. And according to Jesus, a faith that doesn't have anything to say about what happens on the other side of eternity. It's a waste of time. Death defeat, that's it's kind of what Easter is all about. Right? And and after the resurrection, I don't think anyone heard from the Sadducees again. They just kind of evaporated. Um, I'm going to hold out to talk more about the resurrection until until we get there on Easter morning. But here's the point: if your faith doesn't extend beyond the here and now, if it doesn't impact and speak into what's next in such a way that that motivates the way that you live in the present, it's not faith. It's it's just inspiring thoughts and positive thinking. And so Jesus, in this answer, he, he gives us just this little sneak peek into what's next, into the other side. And so he takes this, this, this closest, most intimate human relationship, marriage. One man, one woman for one lifetime. To death do us part, right? Um, and, and, and there's no other relationship on earth that, that is as close as that bond, but here's the thing, on the other side, in heaven, we're promised that now we know in part, then we will know in full. So if your concern is that, am I going to even recognize my spouse when we get to heaven? Of course you will. You're not going to know less, you're going to know more. Here's the thing, and this is what we can barely begin to even fathom, is that this bond of marriage so close and so intimate, it's utterly eclipsed by the bond that we have in Christ, of being united with Christ. It's infinitely deeper and greater. That's why we say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's what faith is about. That is the confidence that we have as believers to know what's next. So, that's the second question. There's one more question that's asked, the final question. And, uh, and let's just close with that. It says this, uh, one of the scribes came up, heard them disputing with each other and seeing that he answered them well, asked, which commandment is most important of all? Jesus said, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind And with all your strength, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And so this, this is a fascinating scenario here. This, this scene here, it kind of goes off script, right? Because this question is being asked by one of the group of tenants, right? These are, he, this scribe is a part of the, the, the religious establishment that Jesus has already said, you guys are, are destined for destruction. The wrong person is coming, but it sure seems like he's got some sincere intentions. He has an honest question. Um, And so what we see here is some kind of an exception, that sincere questions, when they're brought before Jesus, anything is possible. Now, we don't know what happens to him, um, but it sure seems to end on a note of hope. And Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven of the kingdom of God, you're close, you're, you're right on the edge. And so here's what we see when, when, when you take away the scheming, when you take away the hypocrisy, the duplicity, the, 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 the things that we want to bring to Jesus with our own agendas, um, and we just ask honest questions. In this case, it's this. This book's got a lot of things in here. There's a lot of commandments. What's the most important one? What is it all about? Jesus answers that question. What's interesting, he doesn't just say, here's the one most important answer. Here's the one most important command. He doesn't say the first one without saying the second one. He says, love the Lord your God with all that you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. Those two go together. They cannot be separated. Now some people read that and say, oh, so I don't have to read this book. I can keep my Bible on my shelf and I can just go around and I'll just love God and I'll love people. Don't do that. This is not a replacement for your Bible. This is the grid through which you can understand the entire story of Scripture. This is the whole point of what God is doing, of why Jesus came, of what he is leading our lives to become. And so as we read through this book, we understand that it is about showing us how to love God with everything we've got and how to love others the same way that we love ourselves. That's the heart of God. That is the story of scripture. And to close, that is, that's what brought Jesus to this place where he is in this passage today. That's what motivated him to leave the throne room of heaven, to come down to earth as a person, to live that perfect life that none of us have lived and then to die a perfect death on our behalf, the death that we should have died, he died for us. He did it so we can have a restored and right relationship with God. He did it to love us with a sacrificial, unconditional love. And that's the final answer. That's what it's all about. And so as we wade through the challenging, the confusion, the, the, the difficulties, the dents of of understanding, God, what do you want for my life? That's what it comes down to. God's not about just building up power structures, having you get your way, making your life comfortable. He is about showing us what it looks like to love Him first, foremost, totally, and then to pour ourselves, pour our lives out for each other. Let's pray together.